0: To you alone belongs the highest praise. You know, when you um, think about that phrase, which is true and it's important for us to embrace. um, There's a lot of things that can get in the way of that, right? To you alone belongs the highest praise. What gets in the way of that? We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Just before the service began, somebody came up to me and said, What are you going to be talking about today? And so I said a little bit about what I'm going to be talking about. And they said, Why are you going to talk about that? And so uh, I think it's a good reminder for us that there's not just a haphazardness about what we do in any given gathering, every song is carefully and prayerfully chosen. Uh, Any reading that we do, any testimony that we do, certainly the teaching that we do, all these things have great intention behind them, Um, and not just by those of us that plan, but by God Himself. I mean, our whole agenda every given week is, can we gather and be about exactly what we think the Heavenly Father wants us to be about during that hour? And so uh, that's what we're going to hope to do in this hour. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about transformation, how God is at work in mighty, powerful, glorious, life-saving, life-changing kinds of ways all around this world and even in this place. And we've talked about that from various sides. We've talked about how he comes up on the blind side. He just surprises you like he did with Paul. And there's so many great stories in the Bible. We could, we could have done a whole series on the blind side. Just how God has come up on one person after another person and redemptively dealt with them. Then we talked about the inside. How all of that transformation stuff is generated on the inside and works its way out. And today we're talking about the flipped side. There's another, another side to this whole thing where God is at work in glorious life-changing, life-enhancing, life-transforming ways. And uh, often we begin to get on the wrong side of that. And we begin to work against God. And we're not cooperating with Him. And so we're going we're to talk about that a little bit today and, and um, what happens when that's going on. In a moment, I'm going to be reading out of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to go ahead and find that. We'll be looking at chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 5, so we'll be doing a little moving around in 1 Corinthians. Before we get there, I want to remind us about something that was in the news this past week for the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of you might be familiar with Dr. Margaret Hamburg, who is um, the leader of the FDA, Food Drug uh, Administration Uh, They've come under a lot of fire in recent days because of their failure to monitor some uh, medications that had been prepared and sent out across our country, Uh, specifically meds that were developed in a New England um, uh, chemical place that literally uh, created 16,000 vials of of steroid that went out to 23 different states And it was all tainted. And it all had just a little bit of fungus that got in there. And because of that, people have been getting sick. 450 people have gotten sick to this point. 33 have died. So it's a very, very serious kind of thing. There was a congressional hearing about that this past week, uh, kind of uh, grilling Dr. Hamburg. How can this happen? Your office and your job is all about preventing this kind of thing from ever happening. How can this happen? And the point that I want us to take away from that story is that it only takes a little bit to get on the wrong side of God. It's not a big thing. You know, it's not the big, awful, gross stuff that can happen that gets us on the wrong side of God. It's just just little things here and there that can permeate the whole wellness of what God's up to with us and sabotage it. And so with that in mind, we're going to get back into Paul's travels. The Apostle Paul, who had been redeemed and saved and transformed by God, was then commissioned and released by God to go all over the world and tell the gospel and start churches. And on this particular journey that you're looking at now, we talked last week about how he made his way all across Asia Minor and Macedonia until he got to Thessalonica. And last Sunday, we took time to read some things that he said to those Thessalonians. Uh, They were exemplaries. The things that God did there went so deep and were, were so pervasive. It was an example to the world about what God wants to do in the lives of people and in the life of his church. Uh, He makes his way on down to Athens and then over to Corinth. And there he plants another church and later has correspondence with them, writes letters to them. Thus, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And in that, he addresses a number of problems that are going on in the Corinthian church. So Thessalonica, exemplary. I want the world to see what God's doing at Thessalonica because of the way you are believing Him and cooperating with Him. Corinth... It's more like, what were you thinking? You ever felt that way? So, there was a ball game I saw yesterday. I was wondering that. What were you thinking? Anyway, so uh, when Paul gets to Corinth, he immediately does what he does in every other city. And he goes to Jewish communities. He goes to the synagogue. He begins to speak to Jews first to tell them about the Gospel, to tell them that the long-awaited Christ has come. He's here. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, in some cities, that was well-received by Jews. and In other cities, it was not. And in Corinth, it was not well-received. Now, there were a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who had uh, lived in Rome. And when Rome began to uh, exile all the Christians out of the city, they left Rome and came to Corinth. And they meet up with Paul there. And they just happened to be in the same business Paul's in. They make tents for a living, for a livelihood. And so they kind of combined their efforts. They had this tent-making business together and they began to fellowship with one another and, and, and know the Lord together. And they began this church-planting effort. So there were, there were some believers that Paul connected with out of the Jewish community, but by and large, uh, they rejected what he had to say and they opposed him. And so we're told in Acts 18 that Paul, while he was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garbage as if to shake them out of his life and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And thus he did in Corinth. There's a whole lot that we could say there about the attitude that we might have when we're trying to um, be faithful to the work of the gospel in the lives of people. We don't have time for it all. So he... He turns his attention from the Jews fully to the Gentiles and some wondrous things begin to happen. And a number of Gentiles begin to come to faith and are being touched by Christ and transformed by Christ and a church forms and all kinds of cool things like that happen. Now let's pick up the story in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul's going to talk more about how all of this happens. And this is very relevant to you if you're going to be partnering with God with his gospel work in this world. If you're going to be a part of his transforming work all around you and in you, uh, it may look something like this. So picking up in verse 20 of chapter 9, he said to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. Don't you love the way he turns a phrase? You having fun with that? Okay. And so then he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, all that to say this. Here's the word that would describe what Paul is just getting at there. Contextualization. That is to say, Paul could get into the context of other people's lives. He understood Jews. He could communicate with Jews. He could make the gospel relevant to a Jew. He could understand the life of a Gentile. He could communicate the gospel to a Gentile, uh, walk in, in their shoes and, and and make it relevant to who they are and what they were about. And to the weak, that is, those who were really struggling, they wanted to believe, but they were struggling to believe, he, he could get that. And so he could walk with them in such a way that they were strengthened in their belief or deepened in their belief. Contextualization. It's a big buzzword in... Uh, the evangelical church, especially across America these days, because the question is, how far does contextualization go? And the fact of the matter is, in the attempt to be contextual and to be relevant, some churches have gone so far over into the culture that you cannot tell them apart from the culture. They seem so enmeshed in the culture it's like, okay, so what's distinctive about you? I'm not sure I'm getting it. And, and then you have others who are so non-contextual, so non-relevant, so separate. You know, a watching world is like, I don't get that at all. And, and they don't even come close to it. So there's something in the middle that is contextual and relevant so that a watching world can get it and want it. And yet it re- leaves you distinctively separated unto God. So this is what Paul's getting at. This is how I've been going about it, he says. I've become all things to all that by all means I might save some. So it's a pretty powerful statement. Now, he's doing this in Corinth. What is the city of Corinth and who were the Corinthians? It's a very, very ancient city with a lot of history that predates Paul. And in fact, the city had been totally wiped out about 100 years before Paul. And so the Romans had come in and rebuilt it. It was, it was a Roman province in a Greek country. And so it was very cosmopolitan uh, in its makeup. Uh, it was a prosperous port city. I mean, Corinth reminds me of Seattle in so many kinds of ways because it's not out on the coast. It's uh, in an isthmus. And so water comes to it and it's become a big port city. And it has a lot of uh, commerce and a lot of prosperity that's Uh, associated with that. And because of its location, it's very cosmopolitan. You've got people from all over the world that uh, come through Corinth. And it's very pluralistic. There's all kinds of values. There's all kinds of worldviews. There's all kinds of of, uh, values that people are expressing. It's very uh, diverse religiously. All kinds of faiths that are converging right there. And it is a sex-saturated culture. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and and there's a lot of expressions of it. Did I say it? It reminded me of Seattle. And so, uh, uh, all the way to the point of the religious community being uh, sex-saturated. So, a lot of the uh, faith that was there in Corinth was around Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so, if you went to her temple to worship, you would... Uh, joined with a prostitute there, and that was considered an act of worship. You can imagine how popular that kind of faith might be in that day. And so this is the context in which Paul is entering his uh, mission. How do you be contextual? How do you be relevant to that kind of pluralistic diversity? That kind of religious confusion and so on. Well, he does that And many are coming to Christ. And in another letter, at another time, Paul gives expression about what what is this supposed to look like when it's done right, when it's done well, when God's legitimately saving and converting people. And in Titus 2.14, he said it this way, Christ gave Himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. In other words, when the gospel really penetrates your heart, when you really meet Jesus, it changes your life so that there's a new passion about your life. There's a new zealousness about your life with respect to things of God. The things of this world become distasteful as your appetites have been transformed and you you desire the things of God. You're hungry for God and the things of God. You follow me? Now, all that's pertinent to what happened in Corinth, or should we say what didn't happen in Corinth. So, let me take you through it in these kinds of steps. God's changing the world. Jesus dies on the cross, atones for sin, resurrects and conquers death, People begin to place their faith in him by the tens and thousands just in Jerusalem alone. He starts changing the world. Persecution makes the church spread, go throughout all these different regions, everywhere they go. Others begin to believe in Jesus because Christians are going out and telling them about the faith. The, gospel, the uh, New Testament story specifically focuses in on Paul to show us a lot of what happens with Paul. But there's a lot happening with a lot of other people. And as we're watching God transform, He's saving lost people who believe the gospel. He's purifying these saved people. As He's changing their life, they're becoming more like God. They're becoming holy. They're becoming passionate for the things of God. They become zealous for good works that reflect the glory of God. Okay? You follow me? All along the way, though, there are some pretenders. They hear the Gospel. They say they believe the Gospel. And they began to congregate and hang out with Gospel people. But there's something a little bit different from the, of them from the others. And one of those things that you can see is that they don't have a passion about Christ and the things of God. They're not zealous. They don't get really stirred about good things, good works. The pretenders tend to to presume on God's forgiveness. In other words, they're not real careful about personal holiness. They're not real careful about character development, because well, you know God's just not that strict. He's full of grace. He's going to forgive you. That sounding familiar at all? And pretenders are like the Jews in the days of the wilderness wandering. And Paul specifically addresses that in chapter 10. So if you still got your Bible open, turn the page. Chapter 10, verse 1. He begins to make this case. Listen, you've got to be sure. Are you really converted? Don't pretend about this stuff. Because just being close to God, just being in proximity to God and the things of God, that does not save your life. Verse 1, for I want you to know, brothers, Uh, another rendering of that is I don't want you to be ignorant. Don't be, you know, out of the know on, on this. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Remember back in the wilderness wandering, God led them by a cloud through that wilderness, led them through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now let me I know you just read these things a few months ago, but basically, Paul has taken that wilderness wandering and totally compared it to New Testament faith. He said, that whole following of the cloud and going through the Red Sea, that was like your baptism in Jesus. And uh, he provided you water from the rock and, and manna and, and food out in the wilderness. That was like you receiving communion. He said, "So you know, this is like, okay, you've been to church, you've been baptized, you received the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, verse five, with most of them talking about those Jews in the wilderness day, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, really important, underlining if it's not underlining your Bible. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul says, everything that happened out there in the wilderness back in that ancient Israeli history, that happened as a lesson for us as an example for us. Don't make the same mistake they made. Being religiously involved, thinking that makes you pleasing to God, and that you have a legitimate saving relationship with Him. Don't buy into that because it's not true. Pretending gets you nowhere with God. Now, In 1 Corinthians 5, you'll want to flip back there, those first six verses, we're not going to take the time to read them, I'm just going to summarize them for you. But uh, here's uh, one of the key case studies as to what Paul is trying to address in this letter. Remember, he comes to Corinth, preaches the gospel, people come to faith, they start a church, some dynamic, powerful things go on. He's there for 18 months, year and a half. He then leaves and eventually makes his way back to Jerusalem. He finds out stuff that's going on in Corinth because they write him letters, he writes them back, they write him more, he writes them back and so on. And out of all that Corinthian correspondence, he's made aware of a situation that's going on in the church and he's like, are you kidding me? And it takes place in chapter 5. And the short of it is this. There is a man there who has taken the wife of his father as his own Mistress or person for an affair. You know, whatever you want to call it. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about this. Is the wife of his father his mother? Or is the wife of his father, like, you know, he had been widowed and married later, and it's like his stepmother? We don't know. Is the father still alive? Is the father dead? We don't know all the, any of this stuff. All we know is that there is an incestuous thing going on here And not only is it going on, the church is proud of themselves for being so tolerant. Nobody gets in his face. Nobody challenges him about this lifestyle choice. Nobody says, do you you get it? This kind of goes sideways with God. This is on the flip side of what God's up to. And in fact, they, they cut him so much slack, you know, in their mind. They're giving him so much grace, and they're they're proud of it, the way that they are tolerant. And Paul says, Listen, you're arrogant, you're proud about this, and you ought to rather mourn over this happening in your midst. And he says, This guy, if he's not going to repent, if he's not going to change from the sinful way, he needs to be removed. And notice uh, what else he says in that last verse. He says, "A little leaven leavens the whole lump." See just a little fungus in that steroid medicine killed dozens and made hundreds sick. and who knows how far this will go? A little leaven just just. Allowing a little stuff to go on in the life of the church can contaminate it and make it sick. And friends, the church all of America is sick. And When we talk about how God's transforming the world, He's changing the world, it's happening all around the globe with one kind of big blob across North America and West Europe. Not so much. And There's a lot of sickness in the church. And one of the reasons why there is sickness is because there's leaven. There is tainted, unchecked living going on in the midst of the people of God. They're not doing anything about it. Now, Let's continue to see what Paul had to say about it. And uh, we'll pick up in his uh, comments at verse 9. So I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This was in a previous letter. So like we said, there was a whole correspondence thing going on here back and forth, back and forth. So in a previous letter, I said, hey, do not associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one for what what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. Now let me summarize what he just said there real quickly. Don't associate, he says, with the sexually immoral people inside the church. You see, we're called to be a missional people. We're called to take the gospel to all types of people. So he doesn't, God doesn't expect the non-saved person to live like a saved person. And so if you've not been redeemed, if you've not been touched by His Spirit and inhabited by His presence and His work of transformation working on you, He doesn't expect... That, you know, life change things have happened for you. He wants you, he wants me, to hang out with, to befriend, to care about, to pray for, to pour out our lives on behalf of those outside of the believing community with the hope that they come to faith. He said, if I told you not to hang out with immoral people out in the world, you'd have to leave the world because the world's filled with immoral people, Right? What I'm saying to you is don't associate with sexually immoral people inside the church. Now, those outside the church, I'm also making it clear for you, I'm not looking for you to judge them either. We don't judge anybody outside of faith. That's God's business. God will take care of those outside of the faith. To convict them, to woo them, to draw them, uh, to seek to work as redemptive... Power upon them to use uh, our lives, our testimony, our sharing with them. He's all about that. He'll work that. And if they don't come to faith, he'll take care of judging them. But with respect to those inside the faith and inside the church, he says that we have to pay attention to. That we have to engage with. Because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. A little unchecked winked at, uh, not cared about sin in the church will make the church sick and can even kill the church eventually if something's not done about it. So thus he counsels, purge the evil person from among you. Now, what we have come to refer to that whole process about is, is called church discipline where a church takes very seriously what is our health and what is our practice and how are the people uh, and their lives doing within this church family. Um, And is there anything that we can do to edify, to build up, to encourage, to stir, to teach, to to disciple, things like that? Or, Or if there's anything to correct and to reprove and to challenge. All that is within the context of a church family. Now, when we get to chapter 6, you can just turn the page if you want to look at it. Uh, Paul goes on to just be as clear as he knows how to be. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They just won't. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor the adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. It won't happen. There you go. So, what, well, you think everybody in the church is perfect? No. But here's what you need to understand about what the gospel teaches And the New Testament teaches about the life of a believer and the life of the church. There is a difference between a practice of sin where it's a lifestyle and the falling into sin where it's like a one-time occasion that I repent of, I get up and I, I go on and seek not to do that again. One old preacher said it this way, it's the difference between the person who leaps into sin and loves it as contrasted to the person who kind of lapses into sin and loathes it. Hates it that he had fallen into that. So, and you notice that there's all kinds of things here. Let's just talk about the greedy for a minute. Okay? If I come to faith in Christ, The expectation of the gospel is that Jesus will so infiltrate my life and so begin to change my feelings and so begin to change my thoughts that it will be incongruent for me to be greedy. I will begin to be a generous person. That's what transformation will begin to look like. It's what happened to Zacchaeus. Okay? And so, uh, in the process of becoming a generous person, I may occasionally have a lapse of greediness, and somebody makes known a great giving opportunity at Christmas, and you want to make a difference for those who are really struggling right now, and give to this program. And I'm like, oh, Gosh, I just gave to you know another program last month. I don't want to give to another program this month. I got all the, and so I have quenched God's capacity to speak in my life and say, Yeah, give again with my own greed and by that have lapsed into a sin of greed. The next day, God convicts me about it and I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? What is that? I'm crazy. Yes, of course I'm going to give. Yes, of course I'm going to release resource that God's brought into my life. And so I've repented of the greed. I've put the greed behind me. I've moved on into my new life of generosity. You following me? Take that with any other thing. Reviling is just these angry outbursts. Once I come to Christ, I'm no longer an angry guy. It's just not a choice. See, He's transforming me, I begin to be a more agreeable person. Listen, if you've known Christ for years and you're still an angry kind of guy, I'd be really nervous about that. Because that means not much transformation has happened in your life, which may mean you, you've not been redeemed. Are you following me? Paul says this is so important. You have got to have a heart check about this. Because if you're still a swindling kind of person, shady, wheeling and dealing, not totally upfront and honest, you may not be saved. And you need to know that. If you continue to struggle with various addictions, you can't by His power break free from some addictions, you may not be saved. You've got to come to grips with that. Uh, the same things with all kinds of sexuality issues. The same thing with thievery and so on. Now, Paul goes on to say, as he's talking to these Corinthians, in the very next verse, "And such were some of you. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were swindlers and revilers and liars, and so. On. And you were washed." You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You got thoroughly saved and God changed you and transformed you from all of that. So, uh, the point is, He does it. He saves us. He transforms us. And all of us were at some point of depravity. Some of us very depraved. Some of us not so much. But we're all depraved. And His transforming work takes us out of depravity into holiness. Unless you're a pretender. And a pretender is in the middle of all the transformed lives and kind of acting and behaving like the transformed lives, but doesn't have a transformed life. It doesn't have the same heartbeat, the same passion, the same zealousness. Uh, the same kind of appetite for the things of God that the transformed people have. So what? Okay, so we've just done this whole historical thing again, and look at the life of Paul again, the church planting again, talk about sharing the gospel again, and so what? Well, here's what you need to understand about this church. We will be committed to the mission of the gospel. That's why this church was formed. That's why this church has been nurtured and built upon and led and funded and and lives have been poured out in this place for the purpose of the mission. Which is about glorifying Christ and seeing people drawn to Him. That we are that's just who we're gonna be. We are committed to being a holy people. We can't be on the mission and not be a holy people. They have to go together. And so we're going to hold up a bar, we're going to hold up a standard, we're going to say it's the Jesus life that we all want. We're not going to compare ourselves to the Joes and the Janes down the road, and, you know, hey, well, I'm doing better. No. It's the Jesus life, and we're going to be consecrated unto Him and from the world. And we are committed to practicing church discipline so that those first two pieces can be true and can be our reality. And this is not something that we're talking about starting, and that's why I'm announcing it today. This is something that we've done from day one. Okay? You go, I I don't think I've ever heard about that. That's because they have been very private, confidential confrontations that have happened with some frequency throughout the years. How did those turn out? Some of them turned out wondrously. Some of them, you know, a person heard us, repented, squared it up with God, went on, praise Jesus. And there were some others that didn't turn out so well. And that's all about our wanting it to turn out well. It's all about a redemptive heart. It's not, okay, how can we go about excluding or exiling or expelling people? That's not what we're talking about. It's all a redemptive thing. The guy in 1 Corinthians 5, if he would have repented, the church could have rejoiced over his repentance and his transformed life and his giving up his sinful way. And so that's what it's about. And the ultimate negative end of all that is if he or she won't repent and continues to be bad leaven for the loaf, the bread of life, and it has to be removed. So, are you... Or someone you know, on the flip side, the wrong side of God about His transforming work and plan? If you are, will you repent? I tell you, this is why I started this way. This has been about a divine appointment. Today wasn't haphazardly thrown together. It's all come to this moment. With God's question to you, will you repent? He'll meet you with the grace. He'll meet you with the forgiveness. He'll meet you with the transforming power. And if there's someone in your proximity if there's someone that God's got in your life either you're related to them or you're a brother or sister in this church you're in their small group you serve on a ministry team or whatever the case is you socialize with them and there's some stuff in their life that's just sideways on the flip side of God Will you call for them to repent that's what responsible people in the body of Christ do I don't want to judge anybody. You don't judge the people outside the church. We don't have any of these expectations of people outside of the church. This is for within this church community where we have responsibility for this church community to be holy and faithful unto Him. Let me pray for us. So Father, in this very important moment, Your Spirit is at work. And You've already done convicting. You've already brought thoughts to our mind. Either about ourselves or about someone we love and care about. That needs repentance. And to Your glory. And to the furtherance of Your mission. And for our sake, we pray. This would be a day of repentance that we would turn our heart to You and turn it away from junk. In Jesus' name, Amen.